Thank you, Alan. Appreciate that very much. And at this time, we go ahead and like to dismiss the children to Children's Church. If you can follow Miss Sarah back over there, that would be fantastic. Uh, some of you may have seen Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace. If you, y'all, you've seen that. Hey, wait, wait! I want to hear. Any of y'all like Jar Jar? Yeah. You'd love him. <laughs> you know, uh, Brandon, we're going to have to have a talk at a service about your boys. Uh, yeah, you know, my, my kids watched Star Wars growing up, and uh, they loved the bad guys. In fact, my son, the first song he ever wrote was about, uh, was kind of about Darth Vader. And the song went, I love the bad guys, I love the bad guys. And that was like his whole, that was his whole song. Uh, but if you've seen, if you've seen uh, The Phantom Menace, you, you probably remember Jar Jar Banks. We got a picture? Yeah. Uh, he is arguably the most annoying character in the whole movie and in the history of any of the Star Wars movies that have ever been made or ever will be made. Just like the worst. Uh, in fact, the critics at the time had a problem with Jar Jar because they said that his character was at least vaguely racist, and they also acknowledged that whenever he was on the screen, he was pretty hard to take because he was so annoying. Uh, but at a 1999 uh, special effects seminar, the creator of the movie, the special effects director, Rob Coleman, had an opportunity to talk to the crowd. In particular, they, they talked about Jar Jar Binks. And, uh, and he said... George Lucas designed Jar Jar Binks specifically to appeal to kids that were just leaving, uh, you know, the, the age of 15 and under. And apparently it was very successful because uh, Rob Coleman's son, Trent, was very young at the time. And Trent's favorite character was Jar Jar Binks. And, and he dressed up like Jar Jar Binks that Halloween and even used his own money to buy a Jar Jar Binks T-shirt. Uh, but as he was talking about Jar Jar Binks at this special effects conference, he said, he told the crowd that was there, yeah, when I first read the script, my response was like, y'all's response, like, ugh. And everybody laughed, and then he said, but I recognized that if George Lucas was happy with what I did with Jar Jar, then I should be happy. I didn't have to worry about everybody else's response. All I had to, to think about was, how does George Lucas feel about my portrayal of Jar Jar. Well, that's kind of, that makes things kind of easy, doesn't it? When you know there's just one person that I need to please. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but in the New Testament, in the book of Luke, there's a, a star of the show and it's Jesus. And what Jesus is concerned about more than anything else is just pleasing his audience of one, the Heavenly Father. That's one of the things that makes him so compelling. But besides Jesus, there were other supporting members that felt the same way. One of the more interesting supporting cast members in the book of Luke is John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is a, a Nazarite. He's very interesting. He's an over-the-top kind of a character. John the Baptist uh, ha is a Nazarite, which means he's very strict in certain things uh, concerning his lifestyle. There's certain foods that he won't eat. There's certain drinks that he won't drink. He wears animal skins and lives out in, in the wilderness by himself and preaches these messages that are rather fiery and center around repentance and the wrath of God. But in spite of the fact that these messages were very harsh in their content and I think probably also in their delivery, 
people went out, you know, by really by the thousands to go hear this guy preach. They were tired of wokeness in their time too. And so they're like, let's just go out here and get a breath of fresh hell fire preached at us. And so they went out there and, uh, and they had a good time. But even though John the Baptist is very different from Jesus, they were similar in the way that it counted. That is, both of them were very interested in just pleasing their audience of one. No matter how many people flocked to Jesus or John at their high points, and no matter how many abandoned them, no matter how much pressure they had to change their message, they were absolutely set on pleasing the Father. But, of course, when that's your attitude and that's your disposition, I'm just going to serve God above all else, you're going to get rejected. You're going to get criticized. There's going to be pushback. And that's going to come not just from the world, that's going to even come from religious institutions. And if you're not ready for it, it can kind of catch you off guard and, and, and undo you. And so with, with all of that, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who is speaking to us through His Word. The text that we're looking at this morning is Luke chapter 7, verses 31 through 35. And this is Jesus. He said, to what then should I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't weep. For John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, the overarching truth of this passage is pretty plain. Let me put it to you like this. Uh, when you live to please the audience of one, there are going to be lots of people that really do not like your performance. That just goes with the territory. Um, if your motivation is to, to please God above all else, then you're going to have detractors of plenty. You're going to have people that criticize you. They, they, they rebuke you. They don't like what you're doing. They don't like what you're saying. It just comes with the territory. And it doesn't matter if you're, you know, a pastor or in some traditional Christian ministry, or you just lead your family well, and you're a man or a woman of integrity. If you're standing up for the Lord outside of the church, inside of the church, there they're going to be detractors. It just happens. So in the time that remains, we're going to answer one very practical and important question, and that is when, as you seek to honor God above all others, when you are criticized and even despised, what do you need to do? And the first thing is this. Just know that God expects nonconformity, and nonconformity gets pushed back every time. You've probably felt some pressure, maybe not just from childhood, but into your adult years as well. You've probably felt pressure to conform. You know that there are things that you shouldn't do or you should do or attitudes you should hold or attitudes you shouldn't. And if you've ever been surrounded by opinions that are off or actions that are off, you've probably felt some pressure to conform, even though you knew that those actions or attitudes or dispositions or opinions were wrong. And not just kind of wrong, but... but or, or a little bit incorrect, but out of step with the character and nature and revealed will of God. There's a pressure to conform. 
And when you don't conform, people don't like it. And the reason people don't like it when you don't conform is because you are implicitly going to be a challenge to them. Even if you're a good person, a loving person, people don't like to be challenged or even implicitly called to repent, to rethink their lives, to rethink their worldview. You're a challenge. There's going to be pushback. Of course, the Apostle Paul got a lot of pushback. And here's what, here's what the Apostle Paul said. I thought this was very interesting. He said, in light of all the judgments that he would receive, he said, it is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. I'm not aware of anything that is a problem in my life, but I don't get to judge me. You don't get to judge me. No human court judges me. I know it is the Lord who judges me. When that's your attitude, you're going to have a difficult time in life. You, you look at Noah. Noah was deemed by God to be a righteous person. Why? Because he went against the flow of a very corrupt world, challenged everybody. Nobody enjoyed Noah. He didn't get invited to their parties. And then, of course, you've got Jeremiah who, who recognizes, I've got a message to proclaim as the prophet of God, but if I proclaim this message, then I'm going to lose friends and I'm going to lose family. But that didn't stop him from telling the message that God had given to him. Then you got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they get thrown into a fiery furnace for a time. And then Daniel gets thrown to the lions who are very hungry. He spends the night there. And the reason that they're treated in this manner is because they have this deep conviction that they've got an audience of one that they need to please above all else. Peter and John, they are called into the authorities and the authorities that command the, the town say, you guys got to stop preaching. You got to stop sharing this good news. And they say, well, you can decide for yourselves whether we need to listen to you or to God. But as for us, we can't help but tell what it is that we know. You go through the biblical record and really just the record of Christian history, and you're going to find this unbroken chain of people who make this decision. I'm not going to be conformed to this world. And as they're not conformed to the world around them and the culture in which they find themselves, they are constantly swimming upstream. And I'm telling you, it can be exhausting. But we've got a lot of people around here that I think are nonconformists in the best ways. And, and, and you, could, you could point to all kinds of people in this congregation, but I think I'm really kind of most amazed by those that are a little bit younger because it's all the more obvious that when you're dealing with people in their 20s and in their in their, their 30s or even in their 40s, you're dealing with people who are not conforming to the world around them. And so you, some of you, you know these people. I mean, you got to hear from Rebecca Parma last week. That was pretty impressive. And then some of you know, you know, Alan and Sarah Hart, or you know, uh, Sarah and Eric Clausen, or you know, Jonathan and Abby Weldon. And some of you, you're in that, in that class, the C.S. Lewis class with, you know, Mark and Robin and, uh, uh, Brandon and Ariel, and, and I've gotten to know a lot better over the, the course of the last year, uh, Stephen and Laura Whitus. And we've got some excellent young people that are just standing firm because it's not easy to be conformed to God in the midst of a culture that is running against the Lord. But that's, that goes with the territory. In fact, the Apostle Paul puts it like this. This is over in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, do not be conformed. To, the, to this age, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? So that you can discern the, the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. One of the telltale signs that you're actually being conformed to the image of Christ, that you're being remade, is that you are absolutely out of step with the culture around you. If you're not out of step with the culture around you, that's a sign that you're not being conformed to the image of 
of Christ. So, what do you do when people put you down, when you find resistance, when you find yourself criticized or despised? Just know God expects nonconformity. It's not easy. It just comes with the territory of being a Christ follower. Uh, number two, you need to affirm exactly who it is that God has made you to be. Back in first century Israel, you've got to recognize there were not any people that were more different than one another than Jesus and John the Baptist, even though they're cousins. On the one hand, you've got you know, John the Baptist, who is out in the wilderness, and he lives an ascetic lifestyle, and you know he can fast, and, and he's taking his grasshoppers and dipping them in honey. That's his supper. And he's, he's the kind of person that you really would not invite over to your supper because he was that weird. Okay. I mean, he just, he existed out on the periphery of society and from the periphery of society would basically shout from the fringes at the culture. And then you got Jesus. And if you want to find Jesus, you don't go out in the wilderness. You would just go into the town and then you'd ask around, where's the biggest party? And nine times out of ten, Jesus is going to be at the party because he's just called to hang out with people and he loved people where they were. And for the most part, they would love him back. And, and they're just very, very, very different. And yet they were the same where it counted because they wanted to honor God more than anything else. And the point in just recognizing this contrast between Jesus and John, and yeah, yeah, Jesus is not the sinless Son of God, but Jesus says there's nobody greater born among women than, than John. And it's an incredible contrast here. The point is, God does not manage a cookie-cutter factory where everybody comes out the same as everybody else. You've got different gifts and talents and inclinations and different callings and different ministries, and God uses all that variety and all that distinctiveness for His purposes. And so if you get pushback, sometimes the thinking is, well, maybe I need to be more like this person, or maybe I need to be more like this person. No, no, no. You just be who it is that God has made you to be. You don't have to be anybody else. So in the midst of the pushback, just recognize you shouldn't be surprised by that. It's going to come if you're being conformed to the image of Christ. And, and also just affirm who it is that God has made you. But then number three, and this is really important. I want to hang out on this for quite some time. Recognize that brats are everywhere. Okay, and, and now we're going to spend some time on this because I think this is the majority of, of what Jesus is communicating here. Brats are everywhere. Let's go back to the text, verses 31 and 32. This is the Christian Standard Bible translation. Jesus says, To what then should I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children. Not as any children. Children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to each other. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We, we sang a lament, but you didn't, you didn't weep. Verse 32 in the Living Bible translates it like this. They are a group of children who complain to their friends, you don't like it if we play wedding and you don't like it if we play funeral. The idea here is that these people who are giving Jesus a particularly hard time are spoiled. They're spoiled children. Now, let's think about this for just a second because we need to understand the nature of spoiled children. Some of you, yeah, there, there's one. Uh, now, when we think about spoiled children, uh, we may be thinking about our own children, unfortunately. Or maybe you think about uh, yourself because you were a spoiled child. Or maybe you've got that, that cousin who's got the spoiled kid. You've been around spoiled kids, right? Maybe you're one of these people that was blessed with spoiled children. Actually, don't blame God for that. Don't blame your children for that. If you've got spoiled children, that's on you. Okay? And I got a, I got a real big head nod in the first service 
from uh, from some of the senior adults and also actually from Ruth Ann who runs the Children's Day Center because, well, I mean, really, if you got spoiled kids, that's on you. It's like spoiled milk. Why did your milk, milk spoil? You had an expiration date. You should have drank it before it, it spoiled. And the other thing is you probably just left it out on the counter too long and you didn't put it back in the refrigerator. If you got spoiled milk, that's on you. You got spoiled kids, that's on you, Okay. Uh, but if you do have spoiled children, you know how it is. The kick and scream and there's the stop, drop, and roll routine whenever they're being brought somewhere where they don't want to go or something like that. And you, the, the Spoiled kids, they're, they're, not, they're not too fun to be around. Okay, I'm not going to say who this is because it's not anybody here, but like an extended family, we had, a, we had a particular person that, well, let's just say when I was around this kid at reunions and whatever the case, I couldn't take it for more than five seconds. I mean, it's It's bad. I did know a lady who was so spoiled that she didn't think it was a problem being spoiled. And she used to brag about how she was spoiled. And I never said anything to her because she was spoiled. But Jean and I would communicate with one another and we would say, you know, that's not, if you're spoiled, don't tell people you're spoiled. Because like spoiled milk, you drink spoiled milk, you want to vomit. Okay, you're, if you're spoiled, you're no fun. Nobody wants to be around you. This is not a good thing to be spoiled. And she said, we're dealing with some, some brats, some spoiled kids. And, and it's not out there in the world somewhere. This was in the religious institution of Judaism. This, this happened to be like actually the religious leaders. Okay. Yeah. Brats are everywhere, even in religious institutions, even in leadership. That happens. And I'm not picking on the Southern Baptist or any, anywhere else. They're just everywhere in the Catholic Church, in the Baptist Church. In other denominations, they're just around. Okay, they're everywhere. Now, I, I love this illustration. I think Rich Hadley is the one who is responsible for this. He said that it's a good little word picture. He said that chapter seven, verses thirty-one through thirty-five, reminded him of John the Baptist being the bell or the telltale chime of the ice cream truck, and Jesus is the ice cream man. And here in Galilee. You've got all of these waving, pressing, shoving, sticky hands in the air, and the kids are crying out, I want chocolate. I want strawberry. I want the butter brickle. I want the, you know, what would, lemon swirl. I want the pop-up or whatever those were. How many of y'all remember when there were ice cream trucks that would come. There was an ice cream truck in our neighborhood here in town until about seven or eight years ago. Kind of charming, you know, until you had to pay $8 for a push-up, you know, ice cream cone. But, you know, it was charming. Uh, so you got all these kids that are crying out for different things. And here's the problem. All Jesus has something in particular he wants to give. And so all he has is chocolate chip. Well, here's the problem. The traditionalists want the scoop of strawberry and the sugar cone. And then uh, the people on the wild side, gets, they get two scoops of Neapolitan in the waffle cone or the cup. And then, and then there are those who want, you know, pecan, butter pecan ice cream, something off the chart with sprinkles on top. And even for those that are chocolate lovers, well, the, you know, the chocolate chip's not chocolatey enough. And if you're a vanilla wafer person, the vanilla's been polluted by all of the chocolate chips. And nobody's happy. 
with the ice cream cone. Now, if there was an ice cream truck in, I don't know, let's say Nigeria or Afghanistan, woo, we got ice cream. But you do the same ice cream truck in like Georgetown and like, I'm not happy with chocolate chip ice cream. Jesus says, I'm dealing with spoiled children. And why are they not happy with Jesus? And you think, well, of all people, couldn't Jesus make them happy? Here's why they're not happy. They think that Jesus exists for them. Here's why they're not happy. They think that they've got every right to have their specific expectations met. They're going at it like this. They're asking the question, will Jesus and His journey on my life, with through me in my life, will Jesus and His walk with me satisfy me? Will Jesus and His walk with me make me happy? When instead, the question needs to be, will I and my walk with Jesus make Him happy? On one hand, you've got the consumer. And on the other hand, you've got the worshiper. And people really throughout history have pretty well figured out, if I'm coming to Jesus like He's the ice cream man, or my therapist to soothe my feelings, or my cruise director to entertain me, I'm actually going to be very disappointed with Jesus in a pretty short period of time. And when people come to other folks who maybe stand for God in His place, like prophets or priests or pastors or parents or whatever the case may be, and they relate to these people like the cruise director or the ice cream man or the therapist, there's just consistently problems. As a matter of fact, when people who are consumers come to Jesus and then they get to know Jesus better for who He is, they kind of wish He were dead. That actually kind of happens. So, so when you're dealing with the Apostle Paul, guess what happens? He gets beheaded by somebody named Nero. And then there's John the Baptist, and he gets beheaded by this man named Herod Antipas. And then sure enough, Jesus, in line with the, a bunch of other people who have lost their lives in, in this long history of childish brats, He's got thousands of people, I imagine, who are shouting out that he would be crucified because Jesus is incredibly disappointing to consumers. Jesus says, here's the problem. There's brats everywhere. They think everything's about them. They think the religious institution's about them. They think the church is about them. Of course, it's not going to work out so well. They're brats. Now, here's the... the fourth thing that you need to be aware of whenever you're dealing with pushback and criticism, when you're just trying to honor the Lord, whether it's outside of the religious institutions or inside, you just need to understand this, that you're never going to make brats happy. Never. You know why you will never make a brat happy? Here's why. Because what they say they want and what they really want are not one and the same thing. Have you noticed that? Now, I don't I, I will say that my kids, they went through a phase, okay? My, my, even like most kids do, um, you know, they would go through moments where they would throw fits and tantrums and that kind of thing. And Gina, who was very, very wise 
uh, not just in the Bible, but she read all this developmental literature, being a teacher and all the rest. She said, you know, one of the things would happen if our kids started throwing a fit, we'd leave them alone. It's like, go to your room. Or we would say, our ears don't hear, you're whining. We just ignored them totally because they might have said, I want chocolate chip. And what they were really saying was, I just want to control you, mom and dad. I don't want the ice cream. It's not about the ice cream. It's not about the toy. It's not about leaving too early. This is just about me wanting to be at the top of the food chain. This is just about me wanting to be in control. This is just about power. And, and the reason you know that is because nothing is making them happy in that moment. You give them chocolate chip, and it's like, well, the chocolate chips are too big. Or I wanted milk chocolate chips, and these are dark chocolate chips. And I said in a cone, but I didn't mean a sugar cone. I meant in a waffle cone. And, you know, you just, just go, they can't be made happy. You know why? Because it's not about the ice cream. It's about the control. It's about the power. And so you don't give them the power, you don't then the, the tantrums have a tendency to dissipate a little bit quicker. I thought this was kind of interesting. Um, uh, Larry Michaels, he had a, Nancy was telling this story about how when Larry's, one of his daughters, his youngest daughter was, was a little bit younger, and I think maybe like 10 or 11 or something, she was throwing a fit. Like It sounded like she shouldn't be that old, but... She was down on the floor throwing a tantrum in the store, throwing a tantrum over something. And Larry, rather than ignoring her, he got down on the floor and he, in a public place, like in an H-E-B, and started throwing a tantrum alongside of her and doing like the Larry Moe and Curly routine where he's doing the thing on the, the, the floor and like, wah, wah, wah took control away from her and she never threw a tantrum ever again because it wasn't about the toy. It wasn't about the timing. It was about control. You know what I mean? You say, is it, re is it really about that? Look, sometimes you might ask the kid who's throwing a tantrum, what's this really about? They can't even tell you. And then when you give in to what it is that they want, they still don't stop. You know why? Because it it wasn't about what they were saying in the first place. They're confused, but you're the adult in the room and you know what's going on. Uh, recently, I heard about this, this pastor. I'm going to change his name because I don't want anybody to know who this is. We'll just say uh, his name is Mar Marlon Rit Richardson. And uh, he, he was, Marlon was pastoring this, this church that is reputably like, you know, one of the most difficult churches in the state of Texas. No kidding. They, they went through like, Five pastors in six years. The interims lasted longer than the pastors, okay? And, uh, and you know, when, when Marlon was there, he was like, what's going on around here? Everybody's like throwing a fit, and this is kind of getting weird, and, and I don't know what's going on. And Marlon loved the, loved the people, and, but he was under the impression that, that he worked for God. And there were some people there that under their, and just the small people, it didn't take many. Like, well, you know, I th actually, I think the church is ours, and you're our hireling, and you work for us. Uh, and then there was a moment where they put him under disciplinary action. It's like, what, what did I do wrong? And they couldn't tell him. And so he didn't know what the discipline was, and they didn't know what the discipline was, and they just got together every once in a while. It's like, I don't even know why we're together. True story. You say, well, that just sounds weird. How can you, how can you be under disciplinary action and nobody even knows what it's for or what to do? You know what the problem is? Control. Power. You didn't run that by me. 
It's not that complicated. Jesus, and none of us are Jesus, but Jesus had this mockery of a trial. Remember, he's there and they're spitting at him and they're, they're cursing him, they're making fun of him, they're slapping his face and they're mocking him. And it said they, they could find no fault in him. What's going on here? How can you send somebody to their death and you can't even define what the problem is? Here's what the problem is. Control. Jesus nailed it. Here's the problem. I got some brats. Now, if you've ever been on the receiving end of brattiness, and, and some of you, I know your stories, and it's not really about the church. It could be at this school or this kid or this friend or whatever it is. If, if you've ever been on the receiving end of somebody else's brattiness, you know it is really painful. But there's, there's more that you need to hold on to. Let's go on to the next one. Number five. When you're criticized or even despised, what do you need to do? Number five, let's go ahead and put it up there. Know that the Lord will sort everything out in the end. Jesus ends this little section by saying, wisdom is vindicated by her children. What does that mean? Well, the fruits, what's yet to come. And, and sometimes, you know, the tree grows and then there's a season six months later or two years later. And in some of our lives, it might be decades later, but... By their fruit, Jesus says, you'll recognize them. They're, there's the fruit of ministry. There's the fruit of good works. There's the fruit of good words. And you can, you can just let things play out in your life and in their life. And other people can figure it out. That's part of it. But part of it, too, is just recognizing, look, I don't care what your judgment is of me or human, any human court for that matter. I don't even judge myself, says Paul. I just let the Lord judge me. You let things play out. You just let the Lord sort everything out. But as you're thinking about the Lord sorting everything out, it kind of makes you not get too big for your britches because you recognize the judgment that they receive is the judgment that I'm going to receive. And so I'd be, I better be really, really careful not to worry too much about their fruit. I better worry about my own. I better worry about the offspring coming out of my life and, and I'll let the Lord worry about these other people. Number six, don't be a brat yourself. And, and what I mean here, as you're thinking about, well, we'll just let this play out. We'll think about how it's going to play out in your own life. And you just worry about, am I really trying to please the Lord with my own life or not? Abraham Lincoln, who probably got a lot of undue criticism in his life, had a really good statement. He said, I'm not so concerned about whether or not the Lord is on our side. I'm really more concerned that we are on the Lord's side. That's the question. And when you're thinking about that and you're grading your own paper, it'll keep you from doing what you may have wanted to do if you were in Jesus' shoes. See, if I were in Jesus' shoes and the trial was happening and I'm getting slapped and I'm getting insulted and they're spitting in my face, probably in that moment I would say, I would just say right up front, you guys, it's not me, it's you. You scumbags, you brats, or whatever. You know, when you're being treated... Poorly, you want to treat poorly in return. Why does Jesus not say anything when they're doing this other than to ask the question, hey, isn't this an illegal trial? I mean, how, what are you doing here? Why doesn't he just shoot back? Why doesn't he insult back? Why doesn't he slap back? Because Jesus is not there to judge, but to absorb the judgment for them. 
practically speaking for you and me, when I know that the judgment is coming, here's what I want to be really, really careful about. When the brats are being bratty, when you're receiving injustice and you know it, you better be really, really careful because Jesus says, you're, there's, a, there's a vindication or a justification or a judgment that's coming for you. And in Luke chapter 6, he explains, don't judge or you'll be judged. Don't condemn or you'll be condemned. With the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Those that judge are going to get judged. You're inspecting other people, well, you're going to get inspected. And the way you inspect other people is the way you're going to get inspected. And so if you're a brat and you're bratfully judging other people, it's going to go really, 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 really badly for you when the judge judges you. So just don't even go there. And as you recognize all this, number seven, confess that as a brat yourself, you need forgiveness. Now, I don't mean to be unkind to anybody here. I'll just say, I'm a brat. Let's think, think this through. What is sin? Sin is wanting to take control. Sin is thinking, I deserve better than what I'm getting. I'm better than these other people. Sin is knowing what God wants you to do and saying no to God, the ultimate parent, the ultimate authority. I know you want me to do this, but I'd rather do this. And I'm not happy with where you're taking me here, and I want to go somewhere else. Or I'm not going to go there right now. In fact, I'm not going to be happy about whatever it is that you do in my life because I want to be in control. What is that? That's sin. That's brattiness. And the Scripture tells us, this is Romans chapter 3, verse 23. This is the EJV version, the Ernest Jones version. Uh, For all have been brats. And fallen short of the glory of God. Don't, now, hey, you're not supposed to affirm that I'm a brat so quickly. <laughs> but, you know, it's true. You know, it's true. I don't like everything that happens. I'm not, I have a hard time rolling with the punches. I have a hard time not judging back. I, I'm not always happy about, well, I need to do this. And I get convicted and I have to repent. And I'm a brat. But the good news is that Jesus loves brats. And this is where it kind of sticks in my throat because honestly, when I've been around those little brats, I'm ready to get out of here. You know, like, who who loves brats? Jesus. And if I have to be vindicated by all my children, I don't have a prayer. I kind of thought that was interesting. You need to be vindicated by... Wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Why didn't he just say her? Why didn't he just say wisdom is vindicated by her children? Well, let's just say there's a, a thousand children. Okay, I'm going to choose the two or three top kids and say, look at, look at how I'm doing. I'm not choosing the bottom 997 of the thousand. But even the top three are going to have their problems. If we have to be vindicated by all of our children, all of our actions, none of us stand a chance except for Jesus. Jesus came and they could, even the people who wanted to kill him, even the people who hated his guts, even the people who thought he was the biggest threat to their control and he was, they couldn't find anything wrong with him. You know why? Because wisdom is vindicated by all of his children. What's the hope for me and for you? Here's the hope. I recognize that I'm a brat and my children are not going to vindicate me. So what do I need to do? I need to go to the all-wise God, the wisdom who became flesh, the logos became flesh, made his dwelling among us. And in the wisdom of God, 
Jesus wisely lived the life, the perfect life I should have lived, but I didn't because I'm foolish. I'm a brat. And then he died the death we deserve to die. Why? So that we would be vindicated. So we'd be justified by all of his actions. I don't have to be vindicated or justified by all of my children. I can be vindicated by all of his. And in the wisdom of God and in the love of God, Jesus was sent into this world so as to display the full love of God and to fulfill the holy, righteous justice of God. Jesus is perfectly wise. The Father was perfectly wise. And I would hope that you would at least be wise enough to recognize that apart from His wisdom, you don't have a prayer. There, there's a, a number eight we don't have on the board, but it did occur to me. You know, if you've... If you've been the and victim is too loose. We're, we're all sinners. We're all brats. But if you've had those moments where you just went, this is just not right. This is not fair. This is unjust. I get it. If you've ever been on the receiving end of a bunch of brats out in the world or in a religious institution, I just want you to know, if you come through all of this, you will better understand Jesus You'll better understand what he went through and you'll better understand the extent of his love for you. And that's a good thing. And that kind of makes it worthwhile and it certainly will put you in a position where you can re-engage in ministry and keep going. Because in the final analysis, it's all about the beauty and wisdom of Jesus. And there is no beauty and there is no wisdom that surpasses His. And that's why we keep ministry. Let's bow forward to prayer. Father, thank You so much for, uh, for Your Word. And, uh, we, you know, Lord, we just want to confess, we, we've been brats and, uh, and You've given us Your very best. And in many respects, mentally, if not in our actions or attitudes, we've just rejected it and we're brats. But thank You, Lord, for loving us the way that You have. And I pray that as we navigate the difficulties of life as they come outside of the church and inside, not here, and not really, Lord, I'm just very grateful for the people with whom I serve and grateful for the people of this church. But we know that there are just places where it's hard and there have been moments in the past where it's been difficult and and we want to judge back and we want to get on our high horse. And there's only one person that deserves to be on their high horse. And that was you, Jesus. And then you just got down off of it to put us up there. You left your throne that we would be enthroned on high, seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ. Your humility undoes us. So Lord, uh, forgive us the way in which we lick our wounds too long. Forgive us our self-righteousness. Forgive our condescension toward others. Enable us to walk in the, the grace that was so freely and unbelievably given to us. And Lord, if there are any here this morning who have yet to receive You as Savior and Lord, I just pray that You would give them the wisdom to receive You. To know that you love them with an infinite love that they do not deserve, but it's not about them, it's about you, and you can't help but be you. 
So, Father, if there are any here that need to receive You, I pray You'd give them the wisdom to simply acknowledge, Lord, I've sinned. I've, I have been selfish. I have had control issues. I've wanted to do my own thing. And it's not just that I did wrong things. I was wrong about the way in which I went about doing my life. And I confess, I've been a brat. But I also know that, that You love me and You lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died. And I pray that Your grace... And what you did on the cross would be applied to me. Thank you, Jesus, for being my Savior. Thank you for dying in my place. In Jesus' name, amen.